the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together today. And uh, we will talk in a moment about what you need to know. Today's What You Need to Know comes to you live from Texas. Texas. uh, Texas is making waves. We'll talk about what you need to know about the decision there by Governor Abbott to say we're going to go 100% open, uh, no mask mandates, et cetera, et cetera. And later on the program, we'll talk with Lord Conrad Black. He's got uh, a breakdown of uh, Donald Trump's CPAC speech a few days ago. And uh, Lord Black has a perspective. Perspective, uh, that is uh, quite uh, valuable, and we'll talk with him about that. And then we'll also speak with uh, Chris Chemlinski about the amnesty bills. Uh, immigration is an issue that's come up. A lot of people are asking questions. So all that and a lot more. But first, what you need to know, what you need to know uh, today, let's talk about Texas. A couple of observations for you. Uh, Texas went first. Now, as I say that, there are a few states that have sort of never gone into much of the lockdown stuff. They've never gone into the mandates. But when it comes to making noise, you know, if Texas moves and the governor of Texas has a, a big press conference, it's going to get the most attention. And it has. Texas deciding to go, uh, quote, 100% open, no mask mandates is getting worldwide attention. What you need to know is Governor Abbott is is partly deciding to do this because I think he's assessed that it's time to start opening up, but he needed to go first. Why? Because he's a politician. He's up for re-election. Uh, I think it's next year. And he um, he does not, he's been getting a sort of tagged with and embattled by his policies. He's actually been pretty hardline. He, he closed churches. He limited in-person gatherings. He's been pretty much a traditionalist. He hasn't gone as crazy as California, say, or, or New York, and he hasn't got as much attention. But in his community in Texas, which is, you know, even if there are Democrats there, they're largely sort of um, conservative. No, it's not true. A lot of them are conservative leaning. The state has a certain ethos that is like, we're Texas. We're going to do what we want to do. So what you first need to know is he did this because there's a political overlay. The second thing you need to know, and, and going first helped him, but the second thing you need to know is it's about that time. It's about that time. Now, when when uh, Governor Abbott of Texas announced this decision, uh, he was immediately attacked by Governor Newsom of California and uh, the CDC folks made statements that it's probably premature. Do you and I know if it's premature? Do we know if it's going to be worse or better? No. But at this point, we do know that everybody's tried everything and all of it has been mixed results. And there's a point where you just have to make a, a risk assessment for yourself and for your family. And then if you're the governor for your state and go forward. And I, the thing that I salute Governor Abbott for is being bold about it. He's saying, look, we're just going to open things up. There will be local jurisdictions, he said. He said counties can do what they want. Uh, they can have their own range of, of decisions. And some counties can do nothing. And some counties like around Austin are going to probably do a lot. But the point is, he is going to leave it to the people and to the local community more than the state. And I think 
it's about time to get there. Now, if I was a senior, if I was 65 or older, if I had a comorbidity that was worrying like asthma or some of these things, would I charge out into the uh, 100% Texan sun and, and do whatever I want? Probably not. I'd probably, and I th- I'd probably still wear masks. And, you know, in other words, people can make decisions for themselves that are within the range, but the mandates, the, the mandates feel to Americans like too much at times. And I think that time is now. So when you look back at this, will we say, well, it was a little bit too premature. You know, there was only in nearly 30 million people in Texas, only about 5.7 million have had vaccinations. Should he have waited another six weeks or 10 weeks and gotten another 30 or 40 uh, percent? I don't know. You know, there's going to be lots of second guessing. But when push comes to shove, somebody has to make judgments and we make we ask our leaders to make the judgments. And when the leaders make the judgments, if you if you are in office, you're going to either get the benefit or you're going to get, uh, you know, pay the price for it. And I, I recall very vividly talking with a former chief of staff to a governor. I think it was to Governor Ashcroft of, of Missouri when I was uh, just becoming chief of staff to the governor of Missouri, Governor Blunt. And I was getting advice from previous guys and gals that had the position. And he said, well, one thing I can tell you is it's something you can't see coming that will be your biggest challenge. And it won't be how well prepared you are. It will be how you handle it. You know, in other words, you can't tell if a flood's going to come. You can't predict that. And you can be prepared, but you can't really be prepared for everything. It could be in Missouri's case, you know, in the early 90s, there was a flood of the Mississippi. Other times it's the Missouri. There's always a chance of, a, of, a, of the New Madrid fault uh, earthquake and all kinds of things. But generally, it's something you can't see coming. You know, stock market crashes. In the case of the pandemic, total, nobody could predict it. Nobody could predict it with any specificity. I mean, people had been writing about the possibilities and all that. My point here is everybody in office is going to either get the benefit, oh, I got this opportunity to show leadership and it will succeed, or they do the best they can and it will fail. So is Governor Abbott early or late? I'm not sure we'll know. But here's the last thing you need to know on this subject. It sets up a classic um, conflict in my mind, it's a political, but it's also sort of a classic American conflict, a governing conflict between a big state or any state, but a big state especially, and the federal government. So is Joe Biden, who said he would put in federal mandates, he said he would push for that. And he has a lot of clout. He controls a lot of vaccine, a lot of money, a lot of access. He's got a lot of power, maybe more than ever in American history. I'm, I'm sure it's close. It's in the last 10 years. It's probably been, you know, either either the highest amount of power or close to it. And, you know, the, the consolidation of power in the federal government has been extraordinary. And so the question becomes, does how does Biden versus Abbott play out not just in the public relations battle, but practically in governing? Because there's a whole bunch of ways that they could that um, that uh, Governor Abbott could be limited in what he's doing by the federal government. And the question is, will they do it? And, you know, again, the overlay here, another part of this, in some sense, to me, this is a a little bit of a distraction. I think you should get towards opening up and let everybody have the freedom. But the real question in my mind is the schools. And so far, the Biden administration has been incapable of getting the schools and the teachers unions to start moving towards opening up. 
They'll make some noises about it. And in some places they'll open up a day a week, but it's all virtual and it's all it's, it's not real. It's not serious. It's not school. And the question in my mind is, are, is how is that going to play out? Because it, it, while it's one thing to um, let the people, we the people decide whether we're going to mask uh, ourselves or meet in large groups or go out to meals. That's a risk management that adults can make. And yes, it will cost our community if the, you know, the hospitals get overrun. But the question of our students and our young people and the impact that that has in our community and in our nation, that's so big. It seems to me that's the real question we should be talking about. And I have not seen, and I hate that this is going to sound a little bit more cynical than I mean, but it's pretty, pretty easy politics for Governor Abbott to say, yep, open up 100%. Let's go. It's pretty easy politics because even if he has a tough time of it and his numbers go up, he won't be as bad as Cuomo. He won't be as bad as Newsom in California. It won't look as bad. And so he's probably making a cal- political calculation that he can get away with it. But where, and, and so that's easy politics. It's kind of, it's, it's all upside for Abbott in terms of being a leader. But where's the upside and what's the plan on schools? What can you do to make it so that the schools and the teachers unions give up on this idea that they can be the only ones who judge risk management on the schools? Because what Abbott is saying, I'm making a judgment on our community. I can see this and this and this. I can see these numbers. I can see where we are. I can see our vaccines. I can say that I'm going to make this assessment and we can move forward. But nobody in the public policy realm, in the governing realm, has the ability to make that judgment on our schools and say, we've, we've, we've locked it down for a whole year. We've caused a whole year worth of, of, of delay and all whatever you want to say, you know, uh, uh, flat, flatten the curve and all that stuff. But now we have to make a risk assessment and manage the risk by getting back to school. Who's going to do that? Who is going to do that? Because that question is going to have the biggest impact on our nation for, for the next 15 or 20 years or longer. And in the shorter term on the politics, because parents and families are getting really, really upset and they're getting frustrated and they're seeing a lack of leadership. And I think, but don't know, I don't know, but my conjecture is it redounds against the Democrats because of their relationship with the teachers union. But in places like Texas, if the governor doesn't have a plan, he may find himself on the short end of things too. You know, that may, it may, the the guy or gal in power pays a price and gets the benefit for power, right? If you're, if you're lucky enough to, uh, to be in power, you know, in in, president, when the economy booms, you know, Bill Clinton at one point made a comment that uh, besides his impeachment, he didn't have any big excitement in his, in his, I didn't have a war, didn't have anything quite as dramatic. Well, he did, he did have some good economy economic years and notwithstanding the the tech bubble but so that's what you need to know on that all right let's take a break when we come back we'll talk with conrad black and we'll also talk about amnesty should we have amnesty for illegal uh, aliens chris chimlinski who's an expert on that we'll talk about some amnesty bills that are coming up it's ed martin here on the pro america report be right back Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend, Lord Conrad Black, is with us today, and he has a chance. We have a chance to check in with him about uh, he's written a column on President Trump's CPAC speech. And before we get to that, I want to ask Lord Black, who is an author of I know he's done a book on Nixon and a book on Roosevelt. I have his book on Trump in front of me, but he's written four or five other books uh, about uh, history and all. So my first question, Lord Black, is have we ever seen a figure uh, leave uh, office? I mean, I'm even thinking like 
Churchill when he went out of power, but he was still a dominant figure. Uh, have we ever seen a figure? It doesn't feel like in American history we have someone who's so alive and active uh, as a part of the political scene as Donald Trump. I mean, are there parallels in history? Uh, in the history of the United States, I would say the only one that I can think of was Andrew Jackson. Uh, but he lost mm. his first his first attempt right. uh, uh, to, to become president because it, it, it was the four aid race, and there was no majority in the Electoral College. This was in 1824. It was long, nearly 200 years ago. But uh, he came first, and then the second and fourth candidates combined against him in the House of Representatives. So he campaigned for four years against them, and he was elected. But uh, but he, hmm. wa- he wasn't an ex-president. He was an ex-candidate. And the only, as I you see. know, the only um, uh, president of the United States who, who lost an election, who was elected, then, then was defeated and then was elected again to that office was Grover Cleveland. But he was nothing like as flamboyant a man as this, uh, as Donald Trump. <laughs> I th- I, you've had some ex-presidents who, who were certainly distinguished and influential. I'd say President Truman was to a degree. President Eisenhower certainly was. But they were they didn't intervene like this. And they, when they left office, they, they had absolutely no ambition to return to it. And, uh, you know, they retired. They were ex-presidents, and, and they were listened to as, as venerable and respected former president. Uh, this is a special case. Trump feels and his followers feel that he was cheated out of the election. And there's been this massive effort to suppress that, uh, where even mm-hmm. people like Rick Hume and the you know, Fox News people say, well, it's a discredited theory. But it isn't discredited. Anyone who watched who watched what went on on election night and immediately following saw that all sorts of funny rules supposedly put in because of the uh, pandemic were exploited to produce these inexplicable middle-of-the-night drops of lopsided blobs of harvested ballots in favor of Biden, and that provided the margin for victory in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and possibly a couple of other states. And uh, while there's no doubt Biden won the popular vote, it is not at all clear that he would have won the Electoral College if the votes had been fairly tabulated. So Trump has a grievance, and his followers have a grievance, and the attempt to claim that they haven't a grievance has failed. And and the attempt to portray Trump as someone who... uh, just out of megalomania and disrespect for the Constitution, tried to rattle or even overthrow the government on January the 6th, has also failed. The FBI director got completely inadequate publicity, but his testimony at the Congress yesterday showed quite clearly that there was no one involved in the organization of the violent or, or illegal aspect of what went on after the Trump speech. Uh, none of them were connected to the Trump campaign. They weren't planning or pre-planning anything, anything illegal. And so the attempt to keep Trump out uh, of a future politically and to pretend that he was just a sort of dreadful meteor that came up into the sky and uh, across the sky and is gone, all of that has failed. I mean, he now stands there as clearly a, a, a towering figure compared to the incumbent 
president, the present president. I mean, right. Whatever one may say of Joe Biden, he, he's not a presence or a forceful person like Trump is. And 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 he also uh, is at the head of 75 million or more people who think he was essentially cheated out of the election. So he he's extremely formidable. And, and for a while, for you know, really, really a couple of months, we've had this pretense going on that even Mitch McConnell joined that the Trump was was gone now, and we'll go back to the Romney Bush <laughs> right. McCain Republicans. Well, it's not it's not happening. Right. Uh, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black and his uh, piece, which I'll put up on social media, uh, is over at American Greatness. It's Trump's triumph at CPAC. Uh, and uh, uh, pausing for one second, I'll come back to him and his speech uh, Let me on the, on the election, uh, Lord Black. I, you know, again, you watch, you've watched history, you've written of histories of America and Canada, and you've seen, seen a lot of this yourself. Um, it seems to me we've never had a, a concerted effort with the power behind it, and you, you know, you were a publisher and owner of, uh, of magazines and newspapers, so you know better than I do the power, but the power of the, of big media and now big tech to force a narrative on us. The narrative is the election in 2020 was perfect. If you ask questions about it, you're probably a white supremacist who's an insurrectionist. But, but I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's powerful. And frankly, it's effective, isn't it? I'm afraid it is, and I agree with you that it has no precedent in in a free country. Uh, I mean, obviously, in, in some countries that don't have a, a firm tradition of democracy, uh, you, you get all kinds of excesses and and uh, uh, really anti-democratic things happening in, in the use of the media. But uh, in a serious democracy like the United States or Great Britain or Canada or something, there's never been anything like this where, where the entire national political media and social media lock arms in an airtight coalition to promote, as you say, a narrative, significant parts of which every thinking person knows are false and and i mean it obviously won't succeed but it is a, it was it, it only succeeded as far as it did because of the the ability to portray trump because he was, he was such an odd character in presidential terms and then was very indiscreet and at times ill-considered in what he said. Uh, it, it, they managed to convince an inordinate number of people that he was just not fit to be president in terms of his character. Right. And, and in my opinion, that is false. There's absolutely no substantive evidence to support any such claim. But Trump made it easier for them than he should have because of some of the ridiculous right. things that he said. Uh, but I, I thought one of the takeaways on his speech to CPAC on Sunday was that he's learned that lesson. And because he spoke for 90 minutes, he did not say one injudicious or, or questionable thing. Everything he said can be supported. And, and a lot of it his opponents didn't like. But this time they had no handle to, to, to take to what he said and discredit everything he said because of one slip or one phrase he shouldn't have uttered, which was often his problem as president and as candidate, as you recall. By the way, just a yeah, well, well, second to your previous yes. thing, uh, yep. the closest parallel I can think of is Margaret Thatcher in recent terms. You're listening. Yes. I'll remember me. Yep. She left office, but she still had immense influence in the conservative party and in the country. Yeah. Uh, again, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black, and his book on Donald Trump is uh, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other, published in 2018, updated, uh, and you can get it everywhere you buy books. Um, I, I, I want to ask you I wanna, about Trump now, uh, reemerging. 
doesn't two factors doesn't he extraordinarily oh, this is a phrase, bad phrase doesn't he benefit amazingly by the contrast with Biden who who looks whether you like him or not he looks like a swampy insider he looks you know less energetic than Trump so every day you go by that goes by there's more uh, there's more contrast which makes Trump I think look more effective and his 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 tenure look better but the second thing is by taking him off Twitter and Facebook they actually cut off his his noise level but he still already has the following if they cut his twitter and facebook in in december of 2015 he might have been done but he, it's five years later he's already got his 74 million plus and a worldwide audience he's kind of benefiting from getting a little less noise uh, am, am i am i right uh, Ed, I think they're both extremely perceptive points. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, on the first point, I mean, this is no shot at Biden. I mean, you know, we, we all are, we look like what we look like. You know, we are who we are. And, and, but right. it, the contrast is striking. I mean, the current president looks like a, a man who's not well, uh, doesn't speak articulately. Uh, commits an inordinate number of verbal slips. We all have some, but but you know, not like right. he does. And and uh, I'm not meaning this in a in a negative way. I wish him well. I wish him perfect health and a long life. But the fact is, he doesn't look robust. And he doesn't sound robust. And Trump is robust. And your second point, um, the the uh, again, I, Trump said pretty much the same thing in his interview with Steve Hilton on Fox News later on Sunday night, where he. Said, said, look, I don't mind not being on Twitter. I don't mind not spending, you know, being up all night, sending a tweets and all these things. I'm not the president now. I don't have to do it. And, and, and I like it this way. And I've got more time to do other things. And I only, I only did it, he said, because uh, the media wasn't in general prepared to, to repeat what I said. They weren't prepared to cover me in an honest way, most of them. So I had to get my word out directly, but I don't have to do that now. But you see, I think, and we we're all unlicensed psychiatrists, but my, I mean, I've known him a long time, but I'm no intimate of his, but my impression is that he felt that, that he, the only person who was really giving him good advice on his way up to being president, politically speaking, was himself. And and people who said once he was president, he should, he should uh, stand back a bit, be more presidential and so on. He felt all his way up that all publicity was good publicity and he felt that his election right. indicated <laughs> that view. Now he knows right. that he's overwhelmingly prominent in, in, in the minds of the entire country and he doesn't have to do it. And uh, and yeah. and to boot, he can claim that, he, that he's being dishonestly treated, which he is. So he he benefits, as you say, from not being in, the, in, in your face to every American every day all the time. And then he benefits yeah. also from saying, look, this is, look, look at the evil thing they're doing to me. And so he, he gets it coming <laughs> it's true. All right, Lord Black, thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy. We appreciate it. Lord Conrad Black, his piece is over at American Greatness. He publishes there. He's got a myriad of books. Uh, get them. Uh, Lord Conrad Black, we got to run. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. 
Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great guest coming up here now. I'm really excited. Uh, Deputy Director over at Numbers USA. You guys should go to NumbersUSA.com. It's absolutely packed with all the facts, all the unspun spin, you know, of what you're hearing. Uh, Roy Beck, our friend who's been on this program, he's Numbers USA. He's the founder there and president. But today we have uh, as our guest uh, the Deputy Director, Chris Chmielinski, who's over from Numbers USA, because coming up in the next couple weeks are at least two amnesty bills. You, you can't keep track of what's happening because all you're getting is coverage of something, you know, Donald Trump, uh, well, I guess he didn't tweet, but he, you know, he, he gave a speech at CPAC and now we're going to cover speculation about which one of his former campaign aides is going to start a super PAC. And meanwhile, you know, uh, what did uh, 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 Senator Manchin say about the COVID bill? And, I, you know, but meanwhile, over in the Congress, there's at least two big votes that are, that are effectively amnesty for illegal aliens. So uh, Chris Jemelinski is going to walk us through that. Chris, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Tell us these two. I know one, the Dream Act. I was aware of it, but I wasn't. I didn't track the farm, the farm one. So walk us through these two bills that are coming up in the House and what they would do regarding illegal aliens. Sure. Well, the first one, as you mentioned, is 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 the Dream and Promise Act. So there's a little bit of a new twist that's added to it. Most people are are probably familiar with the Dream Act. It mostly applies to uh, illegal aliens who claim they entered the country before the age of 18 um, and meet some other certain requirements. Although this one that the House is going to bring to the floor is is pretty loose on those requirements. Um, for the most part, if you can just figure out some way to document that you were, you were in the country before the age of 18, you should be eligible for the amnesty. So we think that's going to that's gonna award amnesty to about 3 million Ill- illegal aliens, but it's also going to grant a permanent amnesty to about 3 320,000 other illegal aliens who are in the country that are currently protected under what we call temporary protected status. And these are people from from countries that have suffered natural disasters. And in some cases, the natural disasters occurred like 20 years ago, but we still extend this status to them. Um, so hmm. they'll be eligible to receive the amnesty as well. Again, it's a bill that passed the House of Representatives during the last uh, the last Congress, the 116th Congress, um, back in 2019, I think. So it'll probably pass again, mostly along partisan lines. Um, but I, I, I don't expect the Senate to take up this particular version of the Dream Act. Does uh, and Chris is the uh, yeah it, so is this just the House wanting to show its uh, supporters that they're on board and and I mean is it going nowhere or <clears throat> let me say another way can they break it up you know pay, uh, the House will vote on this dramatic thing they'll say look we tried then they'll do a bunch of this by smaller bills or by executive order so I don't know um, I think the. The, the Dream and Promise Act is is already somewhat broken out from from the, the Biden amnesty okay. bill. The big Biden amnesty bill that was introduced contains it. So this is sort of breaking it apart. But the main reason why they're bringing it to the floor is, as you mentioned, it's it's just to it's just to kind of throw a bone to to the pro amnesty supporters that that mm-hmm. you know, came out and helped support their campaigns in the fall. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is that the bill did pass during the last session, and there's this strange rule in the House of Representatives that as long as you bring a bill that was that's reintroduced in a new Congress to the floor by April 1st, that it doesn't have to go through regular order. You can just 
express it to the House floor and have a vote on it. And then the third reason is that there's actually a Republican introduced a version of the DREAM Act that's a lot less broad than this one that's introduced in the Senate. And that was actually introduced by Senator Lindsey Graham. And there's a possibility that that the Senate might actually move on that legislation. So you have the House pass version. If the Senate brings theirs to the floor and it's able to pass, it's able to get past the filibuster, then it would go to conference committee and they would conference the two. And, you know, obviously Democrats in the House are hoping that the the final version would look a lot more like their version rather than the Graham version. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Tell me about the Farm uh, Workhouse Modernization Act, too, please. Sure. Again, this was another bill that passed uh, the House of Representatives during the last Congress. So they're going to try to use that special rule to bring it to the floor before April 1st. And what this does is it grants amnesty to approximately one one million plus uh, illegal farm workers and all of their family members as well. Uh, so it rewards the family as well, uh, in, in addition to the farm worker. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. But the second aspect is that it also reforms the agricultural guest worker program. And that's actually something that Numbers USA supports. We support um, some reforms to the ag workforce, the agricultural guest worker program, but not in the way that they're doing it. They're actually going to reform form the program and create a program of indentured servitude. They're going to bring in foreign workers to come and work on the farm, and if they work a certain number of, uh, of hours and days on the farm, they'll be able to get a green card. So again, we, we, we consider that to be indentured servitude. They force you to work into one thing in order to get rewarded with something else. Um, so Again, it did pass in the last Congress. That passed with, I think, about 25 to 30 Republican votes, mostly Republicans from uh, northwestern um, northwestern part of the United States, Washington State, Oregon. Um, it, it, I see. This bill was pretty much written by the Western Growers Association, and, and, and that's why those Republicans <clears throat> supported it. And uh, we're talking, excuse me, with uh, Chris Chimelinski of uh, Deputy Director at, over at Numbers USA. It's numbersusa.com. And if you go over there, the description, a, you know, mission statement, it's a, uh, a, a forum for understanding all this, uh, all this issue. They focus on a single issue, the numerical level of U.S. immigration. Um, Chris, as a broad stroke, right, we're now, we have this progressive wing of the, of the, um, <clears throat> Democrat Party that seems to want, you know, massive minimum wage hikes, wants amnesty, wants open borders. I suppose um, in the Republican Party, we have this massive populist um, wing now that is pretty clearly wants uh, less immigration, wants to ter- lower the number. And, and um, those two, though, it, are they winning over their parties? I guess. Are you seeing that less Republicans are falling for the argument and more Democrat that there's fewer Democrats that will object? I think that, uh, you know, I think that if I. Uh, on the Republican side, I think the the ones that are pushing more for for restrictions, which are the Tom Cottons of the world, the the, the Ted Cruz's of the world, they're they're having a little bit more success than the Democrats mm-hmm. are on their end, um, and and there's a reason for that. Uh, first, I would point to uh, a recent document that came out this week by the Republican Study Committee, which is one of the largest caucuses uh, of Republican House members, and and they put out again this document. They're they're their resistance to the Biden amnesty plan. And and it had a lot of the populist things that you had mentioned that that are a carryover from from the the former Trump administration. And again, our ideas that are being pushed by the Cottons and the Cruises of the world Um, on the Democratic side. 
I think it's 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 helping with a more progressive wing, and it's definitely helping with their base. But there are those moderate Democrats who, who I, I'm just going to say it, they're they're scared to death of some of this stuff. You're hearing um, Congressman right. Gonzalez, who's a Democrat from Southern Texas, he's he's right. scared to death of the Biden amnesty bill because it doesn't have any sort of enforcement in it whatsoever, and he right. thinks it's going to lead to additional border surges, and that's not something that they want right. in Southern Texas. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, well, listen, Chris, unfortunately, I got to run. Chris Chimelinski, uh, Deputy Director over at Numbers USA. Go to numbersusa.com and you will track all the stuff that's happening. They, they're, they're really honest brokers. They're not, they're not, they never are particularly happy with either party because they think they're all hiding the uh, ball and, and fudging the numbers. So, uh, thanks very, <laughs> thanks very much, Chris. And, uh, keep us in the loop. Uh, very helpful. And, uh, we got to run. We'll take a break and re- be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Here's a good idea for how Congress can make serious cuts in federal spending. Let's leave for another day the issue of whether the taxpayers should grant students big loans to pay for college tuition, even though they can't get jobs that justify taking on all that debt. But for starters, let's eliminate handouts and loans for college tuition now given to students who are not ready for college at all and must take so-called remedial courses. Millions of students start college who are not prepared to do college work. According to government figures published in the New York Times, more than 35% of students must take remedial courses when they start college. Some have to take several remedial courses. Others need so much remedial work that they use up all their state and federal student aid without ever getting a degree. The average student comes to college with a mediocre vocabulary, no background of having read important books, and no writing skills. Somebody ought to tell them that college is not high school, and if they didn't learn enough in high school to get into college, colleges should not admit them and the taxpayers should not be paying their way. Why are the colleges admitting these unprepared students, a practice that is called mass remediation? The answer is simple. Follow the money. The government makes loans and gifts of the taxpayers' money. The college makes money by admitting more students, and the students often spend five or six years taking various courses and may or may not ever get a degree. Many people are responsible for this expensive racket, starting with the grade schools that didn't teach kids how to read and continuing through elementary and high school with social promotion and emphasis on self-esteem instead of academics. It's time to stop setting up students for expensive failure when they are financed by the taxpayers to attend college for which they are not prepared. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Do you have a college-bound son or daughter? Do you care about the next generation? At phyllisschlafly.com, we expose the liberal agenda and anti-Christian mindset found on most college campuses and help equip conservative students to stand up for their beliefs. Visit us at phyllisschlafly.com. And join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, let us let us wrap up today uh, by reviewing, re-mentioning a book. Um, and the book is by Todd Benzman. Todd Benzman is over at the Center for Immigration Studies. And uh, we will... Um, we will be talking with Todd tomorrow, but before we talk to him, I want to mention his book, which came in the mail. It's called America's Covert Border War, The Untold Story of the Nation's Battle to Prevent Jihadist Infiltration. And here's the thing about this book. I'm about halfway through it, and we'll talk with Todd Benzman tomorrow, but I want to tell you, the border problem is, um, it's so simply uh, our maybe second biggest threat in the country right now. The first one being the schools, our school system being locked down and what the pandemic is doing to our families. Um, that feels like it might be the biggest threat. I mean, politically, the policy biggest threat may be what they're trying to push through the Congress to redo the election laws and then uh, enshrine in law. But in terms of the sort of present danger to America, uh, our school system is number one in my mind. But the second one is the border, because the border is not only allowing in illegal aliens who we don't know who they are. We don't know their background in terms of just the let's just pretend the Latin Americans, a low income, whatever uh, reasons they're coming, they're brought in by the by the the uh, cartels, their their trafficking of all kinds. That's all one set of people. It has an impact, you know, to tens of millions of illegal aliens in the country, impacts our school system, impacts our, our uh, social services, impacts our labor force, all that. And then drugs come in through the border, and especially fentanyl. And then uh, and when you read Todd's book, it's just a clear national security threat. And any of our enemies like the communist Chinese regime or the jihadists, they know the whole. They see the whole. And so the Biden administration's policy appears to be creating the, one of the great humanitarian crises, crises in a long time, where we have 150,000, I think they're saying, refugee youth are coming to America in the next couple of months. But that's not the only story. When you read Todd Bensman's book, and I mentioned I'm halfway through, I've got to see him, I'm going to interview him tomorrow, and I'm only about on, on page 122, and I think there's, well, yeah, there's almost 300, well, with footnotes, let's see, with, with the, without the footnotes, it's about oh, 230, so I'm about 120 pages into a 230-page book um, without the footnotes, and um, and when you read it, you say to yourself, oh my gosh, like we, we, we can't be serious about the threats to our country if we can't control the border. I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely blatant and simple that this is a number one uh, challenge. Oh, by, by the way, I'm looking back at my notes here. I, I left out what is, in my mind, one of the great problems of our current immigration system, which is to say we have no system except to let people in. We're also not assimilating people. For lots of reasons that have to do with our education system and have to do with this modern moment, we're not assimilating people in the same way into America, into the melting pot. They're coming into the hyphenated uh, America. You know, we used to have a melting pot where you melted in and you lost your Italian American, you lost your Italianness and became American. You lost your Irishness and became American. It didn't mean that you didn't have the celebration of your history. You did, but you became American. Some of that is gone. Some of that is gone because of education. Some of it's gone because of the, the dynamic of modern life and uh, moving and, and, uh, and just there's lots of reasons. Um, but it's a, it's a problem too on top of that. So, but excuse me, back to this question, America's covert border war. Uh, when you read this book, you get example after example about how our enemies know to target us through the border 
and how Trump was changing that. He didn't change at all, but he was changing that. And uh, it was a big factor. Now, let me say something about this I've been wondering. And I've never, I didn't get an answer. I'll, maybe I'll ask Todd Bensman tomorrow. If, um, if we know a lot about what's happening at the border, like about the jihadists that want to get in and the fentanyl that gets in and the, so the sex trafficking that happens with the cartels. We know all of that. Uh, but but are there, is there things that we don't know? A lot of times I, I assume that there's things that the general public doesn't know. Like, are the communist Chinese using the, the border uh, to infiltrate in ways that we're not aware of? I mean, that we're not publicly told about? I got to think so, right? I, I've got to think that that's why wouldn't they utilize that part of the tool? Maybe they just fund uh, the, the maybe maybe the communist regime is just regime is just funding uh, people to come to the border and cause us the, the heartache and trouble. I don't know. But as you watch this play out, ask yourself, what what could we do differently and, and see if you don't end up at a certain point to just say, we have to have a full-on border wall or, you know, or whatever you want to call it, a border. We have to have a secured border where no one can get in. That's the only, and we have to have a policy where instead of whoever is funding illegal aliens or escorting them like the cartels are, effectively the cartels and the, and the people operating at the border on the, on the outside, are deciding what our immigration policy is. Because as soon as they get here, they're going to be allowed to stay. They're going to do catch and release. And and even, I'm told, and again, I'll ask Todd tomorrow, but some of the reports are that we have tens of thousands of, of illegal aliens. They come and, and they say they're refugees. And some of them, many thousands, are testing positive for COVID. They still get in. I mean, if it was Ebola, we wouldn't let them in, right? Because it was so deadly so fast. But what's our what's our decision? Well, not not what's our default. If you show up, you dictate our immigration policy. What's our policy? What should it be? Shouldn't we the people get to set it? That's what it feels like the difference here is now. So get Todd Benzman's book. It's uh, Again, it's just out uh, in the last couple days. I got it in the mail two days ago. Bombardier Press, uh, America's Covert Border War. Todd Benzman, the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. All right. Thank you for tuning in. As always, thank you to know our technical director, Joanna, for helping book our guests and you for listening. Visit anytime, day or night, ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Tune in there, sign up there for the Daily Wink, get our interviews to playback, and otherwise stay up on all that's happening. All right, we'll take a break. And Excuse me, no, we'll take a break. We'll, well, we'll take a break overnight. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.